Welcome to another edition of Around with Randall, your weekly 10 to 12 minute podcast on making your nonprofit more effective for your community. And here is your host, the CEO and founder of Hallett Philanthropy, Randall Hallett. Another great week here on Around with Randall. Thank you for your time and your interest. Today, a few minutes talking about new gift officers and the process in which one might go as the gift officer or as the leader to effectively integrate them into a pattern of long-term success with your organization. Question uh, on this particular subject came from Gail, which I appreciate greatly. So in thinking about this question, I came to the tactical pieces fairly quickly, some things that as a gift officer you should be looking for, as the leader you need to be engaged with to help them as they come into the organization and grow successfully. But I also was struck by the thought of why this is so important. So what's the data telling us? So we'll get to the tactical as we always do uh, near the end. But just some interesting thoughts. I think many of us who have been around this industry for a number of years readily understand and agree that there is a troubling trend that the turnover of major gift officers is problematic. But there's actually data out there to support why or what the outcomes of that of those of that problematic challenge is. So what we know is, depending on the part of the industry in philanthropy, education versus healthcare versus social service, the average 10-year is about 18 to 24 months. And that we know that 51% of gift officers in uh, in a survey done uh, here recently really look at it from the perspective of they're going to be leaving soon. They're already mentally maybe moving outside the door. The cost of that is about $127,000 in terms of what it might uh, indirect and direct cost for the organization. That does not include lost opportunity dollars that if the gift officer had uh, developed great relationships that would be lost in a future gift activity. So there's some data to support that turnover is very painful. In some ways, helping leaders understand that, particularly if they don't come from philanthropy, you may have to draw some parallels. So in healthcare, if a physician leaves or a group leaves, that's very costly to rebuild those relationships in that referral pipeline that comes from the partnership that you might have with a, with a physician's group. Or in education, if you lose uh, the wrong series of teachers, Sometimes they draw immense revenue from grants or they uh, are uh, attracting PhD students because of their research. So there's parallels out there that indicate that taking care of really good people internally is really important. The number one reason why gift officers leave, so they tell us, is this idea of unrealistic expectations. In a study done by Compass Post and the Haas Jr. Foundation, One-third of all gift officers say off the top that the goals or expectations presented to them are unrealistic. 
if you have certain responsibilities or goals that are just right off the top felt as if they're unrealistic, that's leading to the 51% who are saying they want to leave very fairly quickly. Any, any or any position inside philanthropy out, if the goals are unrealistic, at some point you're going to break and want to go somewhere else. Also, the definition of unrealistic needs to be discussed for a moment. Unrealistic may be defined differently. The organization may think X, but the gift officer might think Y. We're going to talk about process here in a second, which is probably my favorite topic, because if you handle this with the right process, you eliminate a lot of those challenges. The other thing gift officers tell us uh, in in several surveys is, is that about a third indicate that of all gift officers that were surveyed, about a third said they actually had 75% of their time dedicated to philanthropy or fundraising major gift activity, which is telling you that two-thirds are saying, wait a minute, I'm supposed to meet these goals for a major gift officer, but my challenge is, is I'm spending 70%, 60%, 50%, 40% of of my time on non-major gift work, whether that's administrative, internal meetings. And so gift officers are indicating that even the ones that want to make the goal, they're being asked to do other things that aren't major gift level work. So what does all this bring us to? Well, we know the 10 years too short, 18 to 24 months. We know that the cost of losing a major gift officer is not only hard cost, and the the study said 127,000, but lost opportunity. We know that the reasons gift officers are tending to leave is not for necessarily more money, but expectations, number one. And number two, this idea of having enough time to meet, meet reach their goals. So what are the tactical pieces that an organization or a leader, or if you're the gift officer, you should be aiming at to ensure that you have the ability to be successful? So let me start with kind of the beginning of a gift officer tenure. And this is now running into the tactical. So these are maybe seven things that you can think about as a leader to implement or to execute, or if you're a gift officer to be looking for. So the first is real realistic expectations for ROI for your or the gift officer's activity. What I always like to use, and I found to be fairly effective, is kind of a four-year building process. That in year one, that the total cost of the employee or the gift officer, salary benefits, added up to something. And it doesn't have to be to the penny, but generically. That the goal should be a one-to-one ratio. If you're paying a gift officer $100,000 in salary, and then we take a random 25% for benefits, so $125,000. In year one, they should raise about $125,000. In year two, that ratio should jump to three to one. So that's when you're heading into the three seventy-five dollars to $400,000 range. By year three, that ratio increases to five to one. So now you're in the neighborhood of six hundred and seven hundred thousand. And by year four and above, if you're a top performer, if you're someone who's doing incredibly well, you, you're probably closer to eight to 10 to one. So now you're probably at a million or more. It takes time to develop these relationships. The challenge 
is, is that sometimes organizational leaders who don't understand philanthropy think, well, gosh, we hire Randall and in year one, they should raise $750,000. And if there's a great portfolio with a great campaign, great case statements, and people are primed to be asked, and the problem was with the previous major gift officer, they just wouldn't ask, I think that's great. But I think the organization, the leader, and the gift officer all need to be on the same page as to what's realistic. And in particular, if there's not a great pipeline, if there's not a great campaign, if there's not a lot of support, asking a gift officer in year one to come in and close all those gifts for $750,000 or let's say an ROI of five, six, seven to one is not possible or realistic. Might be lucky. But I would rather depend on the long-term connection with the gift officer to the organization and thus to the prospects and donors that they develop relationships with on their own to be the center point of what is successful. So number one is building ROI over time for the gift officer expectations. Number two is use a running three-year average for metrics. There's nothing worse to a gift officer, and let's say a calendar year-end is also fiscal year-end. So they've made all these asks. Things are They're doing all the right things, but the gifts don't close because a bunch of donors decided all for various reasons, but they're going to make the gift next year, not this year. The three-year running average is a protection for the gift officer and for the organization because if the gift officer is doing everything they can and gifts just didn't close in December, but they close in February, or March of the next year. Yes, I understand accounting. And yes, I understand fiscal year end. But at the end of the day, I'm also understanding that we don't control when those decisions are made. We can influence them. We can make sure that they're well-prepared. We can make sure that the information that prospects have are tried and true and, 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 and show value. But at the end of the day, donors make decisions on when to give gifts in their own timeframe. A three-year running average will allow the organization and the gift officer to see a more clear picture of success, expectations, and outcomes for that gift officer's productivity. The third is I use all the indicators as part of the evaluation process. In the beginning, I talked about ROI and ratios of one-to-one, three-to-one, five-to-one. I also want to protect that gift officer by using what I have described in a previous podcast as leading and lagging indicators, I want the leading to be the most important. If the gift officer is making great phone calls, is making visits, is making solicitations, and there's a really strong effort to do it correctly, then if you use all the metrics, it supports the idea of the three-year running average. The three-year running average is for dollars. But the activity that leads to those dollars can be done year over year. And if a gift officer is doing all the right things and logging it correctly, then that's someone we want to invest in. Which brings us to number four, is investing in them from a professional development perspective. The other thing that you get when you use all of the metrics, and again, that podcast is on leading and lagging indicators, the leading indicators of calls, visits, uh, building relationships, the, the, the beginning parts of, of leading us towards gift activity, is if you see a, an issue with conversion, can you invest in that gift officer to help them with that problem, that challenge, that need to get some additional help? 
part of being a leader is trying to anticipate and solve issues that others may not quite see or understand. And by using metrics and those conversion rates, let's say from call to visit, visit to solicitation or soft ask, and you see a hole, can you help someone build confidence or uh, expertise at getting better inside those smaller skill sets? Investing in your people or getting investment for the holes is critically important. Number five, I always like to start the year with what would be thought of as a campaign gift table for each gift officer. And I built an Excel spreadsheet. You could change the goal, but it didn't make any difference because then the, the spreadsheet, the, the, the formulas then would change the giving levels. And so you always had a, a, the right ratios of how many gifts you need at the top versus how many at the bottom. The reason that chart's important is not for the numbers, but can the gift officer put names into those lines to know that they need to make three asks to get to one gift at the top level, but do they actually have three names? This gives an investment of the gift officer in having input into the goals and being realistic and also anticipating for the future. If you have, if a gift officer has a great deal of very positive opportunities at the top, but maybe not as many at the bottom, then part of that year's goal process is probably about pipeline development. Because as a leader, I was always most concerned about the long-term. Yes, I want to look at this year, but what are we doing for next year and the year after? How do I help you build a pipeline so we can redo this gift table with names in a year from now? And some of these names are going to disappear because we asked them, but we need to replace those names. And that takes time to get someone to that $100,000, $500,000 level. Normally, it's not the first gift. So a gift table and conversation about realistic expectations can drive a lot of process for the gift officer about what to concentrate on. Number six, give that gift officer or that gift officer should be asking for the tools, whether that's technology connection and ease for the database, but I think more importantly, flexibility. I had a tremendous gift officer for many years. Uh, Her name was Judy, and Judy was a performer. She just got the job done, and I sat down with her one year, and I said, is there anything I can do? And she goes, yeah, you know, my husband and I live on the out, way on the outskirts of town. And frankly, trying to get in here by 8.15 or 8.30 every morning, I'm right in the middle of rush hour. I'm just losing a bunch of time. Is there a possibility we could flex my schedule a little bit? I'll work just as hard, perform just as well. But it would save me an immense amount of time in just sitting in traffic in rush hours. I'm interested in performance. My comment was, good for you. What do you want to do? So she may have come in at 9.15 or 9.30, but she'd stay till 6.30 or 7. She didn't have kids at home anymore. They had more flexibility. She thought it was the greatest thing in the world. It cost me nothing, but made a gift officer who performed incredibly happy. What is it you can do that doesn't change the structure of your office or what you believe in, but provides flexibility to reward and incentivize great behavior and outcome? Simple solution, but it was worth every penny to her and to me. The last is, is that all of these things should be discussed in the interview process. There, there really can be nothing worse than a, someone taking a job and all of a sudden they're surprised by this process. Like, well, where'd all this stuff come from? I always, after you got through the first couple layers of, of 
interviews would be really diving deep into what their experience is with some of these type of activities that I've discussed as the tactical outcomes from today's podcast. But I also would lay it out after the conversation and say, here's how I handle my leadership role. And here's where I think gift officers fit into it. And I wanted them to interview me as much as I wanted to interview them. If it's not a fit, if they don't want to do these things, then I don't want them in my office because we're going to lead to a problem. I'd rather find the right people than just find people. And so laying all this out in the interview process is incredibly important. So your seven tactical steps, pretty easy. Number one is understanding a building ROI as new gift officers start. Number two is using three-year running averages to make sure that it balances depending on when donors make gifts. Number three is to use all of the metrics in evaluations and, and goal setting, particularly the leading ones. And check out that podcast uh, earlier, that, uh, done a few episodes ago about leading and lagging indicators. Number four is build some professional development and assessment into this process. So you're helping gift officers grow. Number five, use a gift table on an annual basis to make sure that the balance is correct. Six, give those tools and flexibility to really high performers so they feel good about the investment you're making in them or that they feel as if the organization is treating them with the respect that's due. And number seven, discuss all of this interview process. Don't make it a surprise for the organization, the leader, or the gift officer. Couple reminders as we end this week's podcast. Number one, please, if this is helpful, subscribe to this podcast. I kind of always hate to say that, but I, if I don't say it, I, I get a little chastised by some of the people in my organization. And share it with five or six people. Uh, this is a non-paid part of our contribution, Hallett Philanthropy's contribution to the industry to help it be better. And at the end of the day, if this is helpful to you, share it with three or four other people. Say, hey, you might give this guy a listen. Might have something valuable. Also, check out the blogs. We're posting one, two, three a week on various parts of things that we see in the industry and what's going on. And maybe that could be helpful to you as well. And lastly, want to make sure if you have a question like what today we had from Gail, email podcast at hallettphilanthropy.com, hallettphilanthropy.com, two L's, two T's. Or if you completely disagree with me, I'm going to leave it up there. Reeks, R-E-E-K-S, at hallettphilanthropy.com. If you disagree with something I've said, I want to hear about it. I'll review it. and I want to learn. I can learn as much from you as maybe you can learn from me. As I do each week, let me conclude with this. This is a great profession. You're doing great work. If you're representing your organization and wanting to make a difference, then I can't imagine a better place to serve a professional career. You're changing people's lives by the work that you do. Philanthropy has the power to connect people who are trying to make and give back to their community, make it better. We're the conduit to the organizations that actually can do that. Which brings me to my all-time favorite saying, some people make things happen, some people watch things happen, then there are those who wondered what happened. We're people, we're organizations that make things happen for people who are wondering what happened. And as I say every week, I've said it for most of my career and I'll say it going forward. Can you imagine a better way to spend a professional life than being a difference maker and loving what you do? I can't. And I'm lucky I get up every day out of bed, get my day started knowing that I'm a small, small, small part of that effort. Appreciate your time this week. We'll see you next week on Around with Randall. And don't forget, make it a great day.